Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Frances Sachs, and... Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm joined by Elizabeth During, author of The Chastity Plot. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me. Sure. Um, so uh, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about your background and um, how this book came into being. Ah, no, good question. I think that it's, you know, asking about the, the fate of a book is asking about a very you know, tangled, tangled history. How does, how do you find your way to a book or how does a book find its way to you? Um, for me, it's probably, you know, connected with my own background. Um, I come from background in feminism, feminist theory, um, but also in theology. So I've had, you know, a, an education in theology, philosophy, and uh, religion. Um, but this book is more looking at chastity from a variety of, of, you know, cultural, uh, associations uh so certainly the the religious uh plays you know as one might expect uh, a very a very important role but it's not primarily an intervention in the religious meanings of chastity yeah mm. yeah and the uh i the, the part that i suppose makes sense to to most people is is the oddity of trying to find a positive a reading of chastity because for many people within feminism the cultural fuss about female virginity, you know, the whole uh, issue around purity has not seemed a very attractive option. Indeed, many feminists thought, you know, the way forward, the way towards, you know, freedom, recognition, public life was definitely away from this suppression of, of female sexual life. Um, and that always had this connotation that, you know, innocence, virginity was sort of condescending toward women. It was certainly keeping uh, women within, you know, a much more um, within a kind of enclosure. Uh, you know, this idea that woman was intended to remain outside of of the the real active world of of male action and and participation, and that sexual restraint uh, was counted as female honor. You know, as opposed to, you know, male military honor, uh, even male intellectual achievement. That this. Uh, 
yeah, you know, recognition of a female value as connected to control of your sexuality was not exactly complimentary. Um, and that provoked me. I was, you know, curious as, as to the, you know, the other history of chastity, where chastity was aligned with power, with a, with a kind of spiritual power, but also, a, you know, a form of independence, a, a way of opting out of the more traditional plot uh, for women's lives, which had to do with marriage, domesticity, child rearing. Yeah. So that's, um, that's probably the beginning of it, you know, the kind of the motivation. So as someone who has worked in feminism, was chastity something that you also looked down upon as you as you went through your studies? Or, or was there a moment where it kind of came to be something more interesting to you? I think it's ambivalent. Uh, I, I can certainly see the role it, it played in female subordination um, and the, uh, you know, this rather curious idea that, you know, the, the woman's body is at its most powerful, its most magical, um, its most, you know, admirable um, when it's, uh, you know, untouchable, you know, when, when it doesn't act at all, when it's passive. Uh, and that was provocative. You know, that was certainly um, the, the the poisonous side of, of chastity. Um, but the other hand, there's this tradition, you know, which I know about from my background in theology, um, where chastity was a kind of uh, almost a, a, um, a form of athletic achievement, um, you know, a way of struggling against the body, uh, a, a kind of ambition. Um, and certainly the, you know, initial role of uh, chastity, of, of sexual renunciation, uh, among the early Christians in the first, you know, um, five or six centuries, um, probably was more a, a a promise for male ascetics, uh, for men who wanted to follow a more difficult and challenging path, who wanted to to uh, distinguish themselves from from the norm and from the commonplace, and you know, enter this competition for the, for the, for the higher rewards. And women were always part of it. Um, but most of the exhortations to chastity in early Christ Christianity were intended toward men. So, so that the, 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 you know, different histories, the different gendered histories of chastity is certainly part of the story I wanted to tell. So kind of true to its name, the plot, mm -hmm. or the, the organization I found of the book itself follows a pretty neat and satisfying um, chronological path through through the history of chastity. So I was hoping we could start kind of at the beginning, maybe not the beginning of chastity period. We I guess we don't really know in in pre pre-antiquity practices, mm -hmm. but at the beginning of chastity that we know about, can you talk about how it came how it came to be? Yeah, because there there is something peculiar uh about the this moment in late antiquity uh, when Christianity is forming as as a cult um, and as a new religion, and the way it did distinguish itself from you know pagan, from Greco-Roman morality and values, um, and this was certainly noticed that the Christians were doing something different. It was highly valuable in all societies, Greek, Roman, Babylonian, you know Hebrew, uh, for people to you know have a certain restraint. Uh, in their sexual lives. So uh, that was, you know, there's always been a, a, a kind of valuation of modesty, of uh, being able to control your your erotic desires rather than having them control you. But the Christians added this this other, you know, this, this very strange aspiration to this idea of living as if you could be free, 
free from sexuality, free from marriage, no longer part of the, you know, the, the game, the game which is to continue society, to keep the human race going, that they brought in this, this rather radical idea that maybe just bring it to an end. Uh, maybe history is waiting uh, for its for its exit its exit clause, um, and that saying no to to sex is also saying no to sexual reproduction. So this is the controversial part of early Christianity that kind of later praise of chastity has been rather nervous about. That you know if you take it seriously, if you follow it um, to its conclusion, um, a an embrace of sexual renunciation. Uh, really does mean a kind of death to the species. And how can that be positively valued? Um, so that that provoked me. That was certainly, you know, a very strange idea. Um, so the, this transition from, you know, late ancient um, ideals of moderation, right? Restraint, temperance, prudence, um, you know, being rational in in your in your life um, gets, um, you know, rather strongly um, you know, transgressed and indeed violated uh, by this by this new message, uh, this message of of total renunciation, and what that could mean for 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 the human self. So where that's did, the first moment. Yeah, where did that transition come from? Why did that? Why was that an appealing ideal to early Christians? I mean, the the kind of bias against sex wasn't exactly unique to the Christians. Um, it existed in other you know, ascetic communities and um, among, um, you know, say the the ancient, late ancient sage uh, was somebody who could um, determine for themselves how they how they would live, um, and often you know lead uh, you know a celibate life or a life of of the restraint in in eating and drinking, even in engaging in you know the kind of normal social activities, and concentrate on on spiritual improvement. So this idea of, of um, a withdrawal into the contemplative life, that was certainly pre-Christian. Um, and the Christians, you know, took that on board. They were able to absorb, um, you know, this, you know, this kind of rather beautiful idea of the purely contemplative self and then add this twist, uh, which I think did change uh, the whole history of, of the chastity plot. Yeah. Mm. Um, so the it, it's it's not per se... Um, part of the original teaching of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was a bachelor, and that was certainly, you know, special to his his calling and to those who who joined him. That they left their homes, they you know, um, um, escaped from their families to follow this this strange, otherworldly, um, you know, ideal. Um, and then it's as if they they could just suspend their attachment uh, to the family, to physicality, uh, to to life continuing as it was. So perhaps it was a very, you know, apocalyptic message um, that the world as it as it existed um, was kind of doomed to end. That there would be this breaking in of, you know, of eternity into time, uh, and that the you know time would not necessarily last. Um, so I think the the turn against uh, sexuality was, you know, can't be looked at apart from the turn against marriage and the family. Um, and I think early Christians, you know, stood out as strange and as radical. Um, because they, you know, they they seem to want to emancipate themselves from social continuation, you know, to to live in the light of of a, of a new world, a new dispensation, a new future. So, was sexuality central to Christian dogma at its inception, or was that something that 
early Christians kind of adopted in order to differentiate themselves from the the Romans that were living so close. Mm-hmm. So yeah, cool. living amongst. Uh, I don't think it was, you know, a, a, a dogma at all. I think it was um, part of these unusual practices of living in in brotherhoods, and then sometimes uh, living in sisterhood brotherhoods, as if uh, sexual difference didn't obtain, um, as if you could go go beyond gender, and that was a pretty um, radical expectation. Um, so a few, you know, model um, careers. Of, of the monk, of the inhabitant of the desert, of those who went off to live either in tiny communities or to live in caves or just to um, to, to, to wander, to lead a rather nomadic life uh, without settling down back into social communities. And that couldn't last. I mean, that was, you know, an extreme um, but rather temporary uh, moment in at least the, the life of the majority of Christians. It remained as, as a choice for the clergy for those who were the elite, you know, the the exclusive, unusual people. But ordinary Christians, you know, were going to go on marrying. You know, they were going to be like ordinary Greeks and Romans. And so for them, the this, you know, this new teaching uh, about the dispensability of sexuality had to be tempered. It, it, you know, it had to be changed. So a lot of Christian doctrine you know, over the, the you know long period in which uh, virginity was certainly considered, you know, the highest vocation, you know, how to mediate uh, between these these two poles, you know, towards the family, towards reproduction, um, towards perhaps giving a place to marriage, even ultimately making marriage a sacrament, um, and this other, you know, otherworldly, uncanny ideal um, that you could, you know, jump out of out of your skin, out of your reality, into some other place, and that was the place of of the you know the 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 chaste the the kind of making a martyr of your own body and what I call the eunuch, um, you know, including all the negative implications of the eunuch, and the um, Greeks and Romans and the Jews at the time would have been horrified by this idea. To, mm-hmm. to be a eunuch was definitely to be very low on the on the you know in in the in the social ladder. Uh, so to make that valuable um, was provocative. Yeah. You said that the early Christian, early Christian chastity was maybe even more associated with with masculinity than it was with femininity. Mm-hmm. Were there any? Is the eunuch is the term of the idea of eunuch? Is that a gendered term? Mm. It certainly sounds it, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> so that you know, in, in making that kind of my term for the the more ambitious, extreme uh, form of chastity, you know, I'm, I'm consciously you know, playing against um, our expectations of, of gender difference. You know, what kind of body does the eunuch have? It doesn't seem to be, you know, an attractive option uh, for women. Um, some some of the, you know, more extreme dissident groups uh, around late Judaism, um, around early Christianity, um, were, were suspected of, of practicing castration, um, and of doing something, you know, quite horrible to conventional ideas of of, of gender identity. Um, so the the role for women in that uh, would be, I suppose, to to um, you know forgo maternity uh, to to also embrace the idea that they were that their you know significance was not as objects of you know uh, sexual attention. Um, not as intending to be, um, you know, perfect wives and mothers, 
uh, but as understood and respected for, the, for their own sake. Uh, so then to become a eunuch is almost like a third sex, you know, someplace uh, in between and outside of, of conventions of, of gender identity. And that was embraced by women, uh, women um, who were attracted to Christianity and kind of saw the point of this, you know, found it a reason to like, you know, tear up their marriage contracts, um, to, to break out of engagements that had been imposed on them by their families, um, to live, say, with other women, even, you know, most radically to follow around, you know, sort of male spiritual leaders uh, to form their own communities and own separate ways of living. Um, so this was certainly um, taken up by women um, very quickly. Um, and so the, the church had to find a place for this. And, and it was troubling. You know, there was the idea that women who, who were allowed this exemption from the normal, um, you know, destiny of women uh, we're we're um, claiming to be equals, and and we're um, we're challenging we're challenging even um, their their teachers uh, and their spiritual um, advisors uh, in that they could live uh, as if they were men and as if they were men who had a special exemption from society. Mm. So the, the 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 virgin probably is a term that for quite a while didn't have, you know, a. a you know, a strict gender um, connotation. Um, men were called virgins. You know, the the, the forty thousand men, the forty thousand virgins who would, you know, um, inaugurate the new and final, you know, age, like like the age when Revelation was really actualized, um, were probably supposed to be men. Um, but then groups of virgins uh, were also idealized in in, in that way, and and uh, families who were disgruntled um, that their daughters you know, or sisters or wives were, you know, uh, breaking out, um, we're told that this is something to be proud of rather than, than you know, going to complain. And there are, there are plenty of court cases um, where, where Christian leaders um, had to, you know, face um, judges who said, you know, you have, you have, um, you know, you owe something back to these families. You have stolen these women from. So that was a very interesting uh, time in early Christianity when, when the, the battle between the Christian life and the family, um, between this kind of otherworldly and and you know it's almost end of history expectation, was definitely at war with society. The idea of virgin as um, something that was kind of androgynous, more of a singular, even more of a, a intense concept, dated mm -hmm. from the popular imagination, and it became something that was more gendered. Mm -hmm. Oh, how did that shift? And I think you talk about that as the shift from the eunuch plot to the maiden plot. What was that shift? Yeah, no, that that that's a very interesting question, and and I can see how it also picks up, um, you know, some of the um, kind of more utopian uh, expectations we might have today of the the non-binary position as as a kind of antisocial and more self-determined. Uh, way of life, and you know, similarly challenging to conventional ideas of gender, but there was always compromise. I mean, you you don't you don't have innovation, you don't have provocation without you know kickback, um, without a backlash, and the you know the prevalence of you know other models of of especially female um, sexual virtue were there to to kind of serve as means to this new compromise or means to the, you know, the compromise that probably did, did went, went out. Um, the, um, one of the 
things that I suppose didn't figure very much in the Christian struggle over this extreme concept of, you know, androgynous or non, non-binary virginity um, was the, you know, that part of Greek mythology and part, possibly other, other, you know, religious traditions, um, which did allow a place for those who followed, say, in Greece, um, the cult of Diana, the cult of Artemis um, in the original, who's a figure for the wild. I mean, Artemis lives in the woods. You know, she got an exemption, you know, from from you know her father Zeus not to marry, to live as a virgin, to to allow no man access to her and to her followers, um, and that very strong, very kind of untamed notion of the maiden who remains a maiden, and she was called a maiden, um, you know, then kind of got a, a a sort of transformation in 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 Christian practice to being, you know, the the exemplary um, woman. Um, who is sort of, you know, not as subject to libidinous desire as men, and therefore can be almost a wedge within her own society, representing a, a different kind of purity. Because I think in, in before Christianity, it was certainly women who were considered, you know, the more violently erotic, you know, the, the, the least in control of, of, of their sexual desires, the, the, the seducers. Um, you know, men were more rational. So if they thought, well, you know, let's not go overboard, this was possible for them. But it was, you know, quite unusual to imagine that women had an independence of that type and had, you know, a kind of intellectual power and spiritual ambition of that type. So I think it did have to uh, be controlled. And this other ideal of, of the maiden as modest, as virtuous, um, as, as self-controlled, um, you know, came in there to, to, to fill the gap and then acquired its own series of romances and idealizations and, you know, beautiful pictures. I mean, you, you need a pretty picture if you're going to convince people to, you know, behave morally, you know, whatever you mean by that. It's interesting yeah. that that idea of chastity was kind of responsible for shifting an understanding of women's sexuality from being something that was uncontrollable yeah. in, in, in ancient Greek yeah. time period into something that it kind of naturalized the idea that women are more like demure and yeah. um, don't have sexual appetites. Yeah. You know, now, now how you can just people that it's, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, it both, you know, led to this idea, especially in the 19th century, a kind of European ideal and, and perhaps in many other places that it was easier for women to exercise restraint um, and therefore their modesty uh, was valuable, and they would be they would be the leaders in any campaign of of reform, rehabilitation, a protection of the family, protection of children, um, you know, fight against uh, sexual crimes, against promiscuity, against commercial sex. So women get, you know, almost um, solicited into into representing this and representing uh, a kind of you know social unease uh, with unbridled eros, you know, a, a kind of um, as if, as if the libido was weaker in them. Um, and, you know, this is what I think we really have inherited, um, this assumption that, you know, male desire, um, you know, is, is just naturally more intense, um, you know, un, un, untrammeled, um, uh, indiscriminate. Uh, but women bring this kind of order and restraint to it. So that was a, you know, a kind of a, a positive, you know, if you like, narrative uh, that women within Christian culture um, were, were given as their model, as their way to become exemplary, as their, as their way to be special, distinct, and beautiful. And then they were given, you know, um, 
images probably from a different tradition, which I talk about in the book, um, the pastoral tradition, uh, that women are, you know, sweeter, more gentle, uh, more removed from the cut and thrust of, you know, both commercial life and, and um, you know, uh, military life. Uh, and they can be this, this retreat. They can be this kind of idyllic place uh, where men go to relax um, and get away from, you know, from, from the force and competition and, you know, rivalry of regular life. Um, so, the, so the virgin there becomes something, you know, both magical for her very sweetness and her childlikeness. Um, so this, this other idealization of um, the virgin as kind of the survival of the child um, has played a, a, a pretty strong part um, in this culture of valuing chastity. Within that pastoral aesthetic, is the goal of virginity still spiritual exaltation? Mm. Or is it more secular? Is it more about marriage and, and being being a valuable, um, like a desirable object for marriage? Yeah. Yeah, that that's I suppose is is the the lament of my book <laughs> in a way. If it, if it if it has a regret, it's the decline of the sacred, uh, ambitious aspect of of chastity uh, in favor of this, you know, more accommodating, um, more passive um, association of chastity uh, with modesty, um, with a kind of unknowing innocence um, that that could be um, you know could be ideal femininity. Um, that that the the woman um, never, you know, never grew up to the same extent, and that um, would never have been part of the original Christian message. Um, that that I think you can, if you're going to blame somebody, you know, you can't blame Saint Augustine and Saint Paul. It, it's a secular ideal, um, and if you like, an, an ancient myth. How has that ideal been reinforced throughout literature, in medieval literature yeah. or modern yeah. literature? I mean, you get those these these you know chivalric romances, all these stories about knights uh, whose purpose in life is to go save virgins, and and virgins somehow have gotten lost. You know, they're wandering around in the woods, uh, or they're you know uh, you know potential victims of of predators and and you know brutal types, or indeed of monsters and you know non-human aggressors. Um, and knightly virtue is to you know, both respecting the purity of virginity, but having this great satisfaction of being able to save uh, these innocent childlike women um, and to protect them from perhaps their own sexuality as well as anything else. So I think the medieval um, literature um, kind of loves this notion of the, the the magical, you know, the virgin who who's the only person who can catch the unicorn. Uh, the virgin is the person who can walk through, you know, this... Um, you know, enchanted, uh, diabolical world, um, and remain intact. You know, kind of remain just exactly what she is, and nothing else. So there's a kind of integrity there, which is the, the positive side of that, and goes along also with the um, the way um, you know medieval, you know, romantic mythology um, tried to turn the sublimation of of erotic love into a, a virtue for men as well. Uh, that if you desire if your beloved is somebody you can never have, sort of in some ways remains this, you know, untouchable virgin, uh, then you can become stronger. You know, you can prove yourself in both, you know, having the adoration, having the worship, having the passion, um, but saying no to it, you know, learning a kind of renunciation through erotic attachment. 
Um, so the woman remains desirable, you know, beautiful, perfect. You know, we we don't we you know, we, we we maintain the objectification of of the female um, body and female sexuality, but it, but it turns out to be a compliment to the men um, who can look on this and yet say no to themselves, say no to their desire. Um, so that kind of, you know, almost a secular sort of asceticism uh, becomes part of a literary tradition. Do you feel like that further, that serves to even further abstract women's sexuality? Because it's not something that it becomes something that's not even, um, it doesn't even have a any solidity to it. Like, it's not like it's something that women are either denying to their suitors or, um, like, overwhelming them with. It's something that is never even going to come about. The, the males, the chivalrous males never get to come in contact with the, with the, with the females. And the more elusive or aloof or unattainable a female is in these stories the more valuable she is. Yeah. No, that, I think that that's um, left a, a, a quite uh, disturbing legacy. I mean, if you like the double standard or, you know, the virgin whore uh, correlation that, that we've suffered with a lot is, is part of it. And you put that very well. I think it's, it's, it's an abstraction. Um, it's an ideal of disembodiment at the same time that this is, you know, kind of highly endowed with, with, with sexual, um, you know, allure. Right, so that the the allure is that which can't be touched, the allure which is that that which is unattainable. But that is no action on the part of the woman. I mean, the woman is just to remain in in her tower, or you know, surrounded by you know, like Sleeping Beauty, you know, surrounded by these these um, you know thorny bushes. Um, and that the the almost the the ideal moment is when the the, the desiring male is kept away from this possible consummation. Um, that there's always something disappointing. Um, you know, a letdown, you know, a kind of <laughs> return to normalcy about consummation. You know, then where is the ideal woman after that? You know, so you, so you want to put it off as long as possible. And you want, you, you want to be, you know, it's like then, then the kind of male erotic plot or the kind of traditional erotic plot, you know, is this step-by-step, -step, um, you know, refusal that perhaps at the end there will be, you know, a, a, um, a condescension, you know, an assent, a consent, um, but that you want to prolong, um, you know, the seductiveness of, of that um, so that women are valued, even if they're not quite believed, if they go on saying no. And th that's a problem. <laughs> and that's a problem um, that I'm trying to look at now. I'm, I'm turning from chastity to doing some work on, on rape um, and particularly on unconscious rape to find out why, yeah, why the, the uh, woman's power to say no is both idolized and indeed fetishized and yet never uh, never taken seriously never totally believed that's fascinating never thought about it like that um okay so i see that we are actually running out of time so i have one more question which is that um and this is something you touched on in the introduction to your book actually which is that there's a modern distaste for making any moral judgments about the sexual practices of women, um, you didn't exactly put it like that, and I don't. I just I don't know if that's exactly what you mean, but that's in my experience that that is true. Um, and we never want to say that there's one way of being sexual that's better than another in modern feminist discourse. Yes, yes, that's obviously liberating and allows for more plural. plural 
plurality of experience, which is a which is a really good thing. But it also might leave us without any guidance and without any alternative structure. And so I could see how sexual practices without any um, imposing structure on them yeah. might fall into the patriarchal structure that is already dominant. Mm -hmm. That's already dominant. Should there be more intervention into the erotic lives of citizens? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so this gets to a whole mess about the, the, the private and the public, um, which was something that, you know, to give them credit, uh, I think early Christians, you know, managed their own solution to it. I do think there's a problem about the lack of, of sexual ethics um, today. And so, you know, maybe, you know, the book is, you know, only starts to be an intervention um, in that and in, in reminding us that there have been other ways of, of conceiving um, sexual sexual ethics, even though they had, I, I suspect, um, their own kind of, you know, innate decline and you know, innate um, um, destiny to become ambivalent, paradoxical, impossible. But we haven't come up with anything better. We 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 still have this awkwardness, uncertainty within feminism. Um, can you be just sex positive? Is it all great? Does everybody have a right to sex? And then where does that lead to you? Certainly, where does it lead to you in in questions about you know, sexual harassment, you know, assault, objectification of women, um, you know, even that kind of you know, vulgarization of, of the conversation about sex, because we are, you know, um, we are kind of, you know, anxious um, and kind of queasy about the very idea of, of trying to think morality and sex in, in, in the same in the same moment. Um, and feminism, you know, first it thought it had an answer. Yes, you know, we get rid of sexual repression and then we're going to be equal. And, but there is also another trend in, in you know, some of the early feminists uh, who saw marriage as the real problem and saw almost as uh, women's life with men as the beginning of corruption and did try to separate themselves out. And we have, you know, have separatist feminism. We have, you know, an idealization of, of, of women, women love as perhaps the alternative um, to this to this mess. Um, but we haven't thought of, you know, what's a sexual ethic? For, for adults, <laughs> not, you know, not about children, you know, not about predators, not about, you know, the worst vices we can imagine, but for those of us who just stumble along, you know, kind of unclear about what, 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 you know, could and should be um, a decent way to behave sexually. And it's, it's not that easily solved. Totally. Um, well, thank you so much. This is so interesting. Um, is there anything quickly? I see you have a little more time. Anything before we go that we should look out for <laughs> in, in, in the present? I don't predict um, a revival of of sexual chastity or any kind of chastity. Um, I, you know, I'd, it would be interesting if in our you know in our discussions about you know a world beyond gender and a world beyond binary gender, uh, if some of these um, you know more ancient. Uh, traditions and images uh, return. I, I think you know the the, the cult of Artemis uh, has a certain appeal. I mean, this this wild and um, you know a kind of very destructive uh, goddess. You know, because virginity can also be very violent. Um, that has a sort of force that might be used. You know, against the you know the condescension um, to sexual virtue as something only for those who are afraid of sex, who are weak, who are inhibited. There, there are there are other ways to uh, imagine, you know, an independence from you know from the kind of imperative of sex. 
uh, and I think that 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 may return. Um, I don't think we're going to um, we're not going to get away from a different responsibility for feminism, uh, which is to to fight to defend um, you know women's control over their own sexuality. I don't think chastity um, is is going you know is 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 the right uh, weapon yeah for that war. I don't know that I have a better one, um, but one one kind of has to adapt um, to each uh, new struggle. But but I do I do look forward to, you know, one one other thing is perhaps, um, you know, getting rid of um, this um, sort of blanket condemnation of of the Christian tradition as you know the villain um, in the history of, of of feminism and the vi- villain in, in the history of sexuality. Uh, I think I think Foucault has helped a bit to make us see that differently, especially like in the the last couple of volumes of his History of Sexuality. Um, and also the Greco-Roman uh, notions of of temperance, of self-ownership, um, of um, a kind of more contemplative attitude toward sexuality, where sexuality is not just considered something, um, you know, wild or bestial, um, but something that, you know, is part of life, but, but you know, not the be-all and end-all. Um, so, so if I had to you know, give, if I had to look positively um, at the next step um, for you know, feminist critics um, and scholars um, and uh, activists. Uh, it might also include, um, you know, rethinking our, our our cultural past in the history of sexuality. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you. Very nice to talk to you.